0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our new podcast series. We are going to be looking at the reforms to corporate criminal liability in the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act 2023. My name is Susanna Cogman, and I'm a partner in the Corporate Crime and Investigations team in London at Herbert Smith Freehills. Hills. I'm delighted to be joined today by two of my colleagues. Firstly, Liz Head. Hi everyone, I'm Liz Head.
1: I'm an off-counsel in the London Corporate Crime Investigations team. And
0: secondly, uh, Jess Pat.
2: Hi everyone, I am a senior associate in the team and excited to be here talking today about corporate criminal liability. And
0: frankly there is nothing more exciting than talking <laughs> about corporate criminal liability and, and I hope you all think that too. Um, I'm just going to briefly introduce the topic and then uh, Liz and Jess are going to talk about uh, those key reforms which are in the Act. And this, as I've mentioned, is the first of a series of podcasts which is going to unpack some of those concepts that we'll be talking about in summary today in a bit more detail. So the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act, which we'll just call the Economic Crime Act or the Act for, uh, for Brevity, received Royal Assent uh, just a couple of weeks ago and it's an omnibus act which contains a number of different reforms which are relevant to economic crime. There's some really significant reforms to the role of Companies House, there are some tweaks to the of Crime Act, um, there are some tweaks to uh, agencies enforcement powers, there's a, a tranche of measures relating to crypto assets, but what we'll be focusing on in this series is, is specifically the question of corporate criminal liability. What, what do we mean by that? Well, if you think about it, a company is a legal person. Um, it can be sued, it can enter contracts, it can commit offences, but it can only do that through the agency of individual humans. And so the question we're really trying to answer here is, who is the company? Which individuals are the company for the purposes of the criminal law? Is it just very senior people within the organisation? Does it extend to more junior employees? Could someone who's a third party create criminal liability for the company? Um, And in the UK, traditionally, and with some important exceptions, we've had quite a narrow concept of who is the company, for the purposes of the criminal law, and the two reforms we're going to be talking about today um, are a significant change to that traditional position. Um, We'll touch a little bit later on on a little bit more of the the history to to these reforms, but perhaps Jess, to to kick us off, can you just kind of walk us through
2: what those two uh, key areas of reform are, please? Sure. So the two principal areas of reform that we'll be talking about today are one, a new failure to prevent fraud offence and two, the expansion of the identification principle. I'll briefly walk us through the new fraud offence now and then Liz will touch on the identification principle. So the new fraud offence is modelled on other failure to prevent type offences. Uh, the first of which we saw in the UK Bribery Act in 2010, which introduced the concept whereby a company could be criminally liable for failing to prevent an associated person from committing bribery. The concept was then used in the Criminal Finances Act 2017, which created a failure to prevent the facilitation of tax evasion offence. In respect of both of these offences, It is a defence for companies to show that they have reasonable or adequate procedures in place to prevent bribery or tax evasion from taking place. So under the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act, uh, a corporate offence will be committed where an associated person of a relevant body commits a fraud offence intending to benefit, whether directly or indirectly, A, a relevant body Or B, any person to whom or to whose subsidiary the associate provides services on behalf of the relevant body. And the relevant body failed to have in place reasonable fraud prevention procedures, like we saw in the Bribery and Criminal Finances Act. So let's break that down a bit. What do we mean by relevant body? A relevant body is a large organisation. Uh, which is defined as a company which satisfies two out of the following three criteria in the year preceding the fraud offence. So more than 250 employees, more than 36 million in turnover, and more than 18 million in total assets. If resources held across a corporate group cumulatively meet the size threshold, then that group of companies will be in scope of the offence. So what do we mean by associated person? This is a concept that we are familiar with from the other failure-to-prevent type offences and in the Act, it's defined as being an employee, agent, subsidiary or a person who performs services for or on behalf of the organisation. I'm not going to go into any more detail today because we're going to have a separate podcast on this topic. In terms of a fraud offence, the Act lists um, has a schedule, I think it's Schedule 13, where uh, which lists uh, a, a number of offences that are caught within the scope of the Act. And it also states that aiding, abetting, counselling or procuring the commission of one of those offences would also be an offence. So what are the offences? These are the Fraud Act offences, such as fraud by false representation, false accounting, false statements by company directors, fraudulent trading, and cheating the public revenue. The last point that I wanted to, to mention was reasonable fraud prevention procedures. Um, I said that there was there is a defence under the Act if a company has these pr- procedures in place. Again, we're going to have a separate podcast entirely on this subject. Um, but just to note up front that the government will publish guidance on what reasonable fraud prevention procedures um, should look like. And it's only once that guidance has been published that the offence will come into force. Um, In terms of the guidance itself, it's currently unclear what it's going to look like. Um, We do, however, expect it to be high level and principles based, uh, similar to the guidance that accompanied the other failure to prevent offences. We are also expecting a consultation on the guidance uh, to take place during the course of next year.
0: Thanks, Jess. Um, Now, there's a certain amount to unpack there, and um, I followed all of that, but then I've read the Act. Um, I don't know whether one of you, uh, perhaps Liz, could give us some examples of how those tests play out in practice, so what would be in scope or out, out of scope of the um, the failure to prevent offence.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it, it's worth pointing out at this point that it, it is not every single fraud that might touch upon a company um, for which that company will be liable. So there are some some hurdles to jump through and some bits of the test to unpack. Um, So in particular the drafting drafting of the offence builds in consideration of the intention of the underlying fraudster and who they intend to be the victim of their fraud. Um, So, first and foremost, a company is not going to be liable for failing to prevent a fraud of which it, the company itself, is the actual or intended victim. Um, And a good example of that might be employee expenses fraud. Um, Although, as Jess was saying, an employee is an associated person of their employing company, if that employee makes a fraudulent expenses claim, the company won't be liable for failing to prevent that particular fraud because the company was trying, sorry, the individual was trying to defraud the company itself, the company is the victim. So again, if you contrast that with a situation where you have an employee, again, still an associated person, who fraudulently misstates elements of a company's accounts in order to, let's say, artificially inflate the revenue that that company is reporting, if we assume that involves some kind of commission of a fraud offence or false accounting, that could well be a situation where actually what that employee is intending to do is benefit the company, um, for example, because it will publish healthier results or similar. And so in that situation you have an associated person committing fraud to benefit the company and the company will be in scope of the new offence unless it can show that it's got those reasonable fraud prevention procedures in place. I suppose the other limiting factor to mention is that companies are also not going to be liable for frauds committed other than by their associated persons. Um, So let's say in this example you have a company who finds that a fraudster has taken on its name or, or other information attributable to the company, it's used that information in some kind of scam targeting third parties. In that situation, and you know all other things being equal, assuming no involvement by employees or, or similar, the fraudster is not an associated person of the company and the offence wouldn't come into play.
0: That's very helpful, thanks Liz. So in a sense, while this is a very broad offence and covers a large variety of types of fraud, in another it is quite focused on certain specific contexts rather than kind of all types of fraud that might affect a company's operations. So I think, Jess, turning back to you, you've kind of outlined the elements of the offence and the the defence, which is the reasonable prevention procedures, um, at, at the risk of stating the obvious, and um, therefore, what does this kind of mean for companies in terms of implications and sort of practical points?
2: So, albeit companies will will want to wait and see what the government guidance is going to look like, there are some steps that they we would recommend uh, thinking through uh, thinking through at present. These include. Firstly, scoping a project of uh, so scoping a risk assessment project. Who is going to run it? Uh, which businesses are going to be covered? What will a fraud risk assessment look like? How? What are the company's main fraud risk areas? Um, mapping the existing controls that are relevant to fraud, um, and those are probably the kind of key areas that I would uh, start with at at present. And then I expect, as I said, companies will want to wait and see. Uh, what the government guidance looks like.
0: Thanks Jess, Um, and we'll talk about that again in a later podcast, um, uh, not least because I am sceptical about how useful the guidance will be, but um, uh, we live in hope. Um, But talking about scoping that project um, and that risk assessment, uh, Liz, is this something that only UK companies have to worry about, or do non-UK clients need to listen to our podcast series as well and should they be thinking about this purely from a kind of UK lens or you know what, what is the jurisdictional scope of this new offence?
1: Um, so the short answer is all non-U- non-UK listeners please do keep listening because there is some relevance to you this is this is not just a, a UK company issue. Um, it, the jurisdictional scope of the new offence is not entirely straightforward um and so we are going to have a, a separate episode looking at that as well that's the theme of today's session um i think that for now the key takeaway for non-uk companies is that as it's drafted the failure to prevent fraud offence can apply to entities incorporated anywhere in the world um and the way in which that will apply will follow the jurisdictional scope of the underlying fraud offence that's committed so one of the key examples that's given in the the UK government publications supporting the release of the offence is that an overseas company can be prosecuted if it has an employee who commits a UK fraud offence or who otherwise targets UK victims which is potentially a, quite a broad test to to apply and in particular for, for our listeners to think through in practice um so one of the key elements i think of that risk assessment process is going to be thinking about that jurisdictional lens do do you want to assess your risks based on purely the kind of legal application of the offense in which case you would be thinking through what your UK touch points are, where where are there risks that a UK fraud offence could be committed? Or if you are going through the exercise anyway, because you have some kind of UK connection, do you want to be thinking slightly more broadly about fraud prevention across your business as a whole and whether what you have in place is is currently fit for purpose or could be enhanced, almost irrespective of whether a particular situation or control is relevant to whether this offence can apply. Um, so there's there's kind of two two limbs through which people might be thinking about it. Um, but the the short answer is that it's not something that non-UK companies can avoid and there is scope for them to be liable even where the company's based overseas and indeed even where an employee is based overseas if what they're doing, for example, targets UK victims.
0: But I think it's important to recognise that it's it's different from the Bribery Act or the Criminal Finances Act. Exactly. Jurisdictional scope, yeah. Okay, super. Well, we'll obviously come back to that in a future episode. We've been talking about failure to prevent fraud. Can you tell us about the other changes to corporate criminal liability in the Act, so the the reforms to the identification principle that Jess referred to earlier.
1: Absolutely. Um, So as things currently stand, um, and as Susanna was alluding to at the outset, generally speaking, a company can only commit a criminal offence where individuals who represent that company's directing mind and will have the necessary mental state for that offence to be committed, so that might be knowledge, recklessness, some other standard, but that has to be present within individuals who represent the directing mind and will, which typically has been interpreted as board members. Um, And so it has been a relatively high bar for prosecutors to meet when seeking to prosecute corporates, And these changes to that identification doctrine seek to address that perceived imbalance or or difficulty in bringing prosecutions. So once these changes come into force, if a senior manager of a company or an entity who is acting within the actual or apparent scope of their authority commits a relevant offence, which I'll come back to in a second, Um, then the organisation itself will be criminally liable. No um, carve-out for different sizes of company, no adequate or reasonable procedures defence. That's just the way in which corporate criminal liability will be attributed. So it's a fairly significant departure from the current status quo. Um, And it, it is intended certainly by entities like the Serious Fraud Office that this will make it more straightforward for them to prosecute companies. Um, The new approach is going to apply to a a wide range of economic crime offences, so it will include bribery, fraud, money laundering offences, financial sanctions breaches and various others. And so it it may well in due course lead to more corporate prosecutions in this area. Super,
0: thank you Liz. And bouncing around back to Jess, when will these various changes we've been talking about come into force?
2: So um, I think I briefly touched on it earlier, the failure to prevent fraud offence will come into force once the government um, has published its guidance, which will be following the uh, consultation that's going to happen uh, during the course of next year. So we expect this will likely be end of it, towards the end of next year, even possibly early 2025 um whereas the ide- reforms to the identification principle that Liz has just been uh, discussing will come into force at the end of December super
0: and these are pretty significant reforms to the law and for the last few minutes of this podcast can we talk about the the context to that how has this all come about uh, Liz quite a big question for a few minutes mm. how, how yep. did we
1: get here um, i think where where i would start us off is that is with some of the comments i made earlier um calls from the the sfo and others to reform the law because it has been too challenging for them to prosecute corporates and as they would say to to hold corporates account to account for wrongdoing um some momentum started to build up around this topic um in around 2020 And that led to the Law Commission examining the issue and publishing a paper which set out a number of different options for reform of this area. So it wasn't focused specifically on failure to prevent fraud, although that was one of the options discussed in the paper. But it looked at a number of other areas in which the the status quo in respect of corporate criminal liability could be improved. we, we had that paper and then things went quiet again for a little while but the the debate was somewhat reinvigorated earlier this year when the, the Act was making its way through Parliament and a draft, failure to prevent fraud offence, was inserted. That's been through a number of iterations, there's been a certain amount of back and forth which we can touch on um, but it has ended up coming into the final version, along with the changes to the identification doctrine that I mentioned earlier, really with an overall policy goal of putting together a stronger package of measures that will allow corporates to be held to account for criminal activity in in ways which they haven't been to date.
2: Shall I jump in there, Liz, and refer to the back and forth between uh, Parliament? Um, i think the kind of key points that were being debated up until the last few weeks really uh before the act received royal assent, wa- royal assent were uh, firstly the scope of the of um of the offence so which type of company would be um uh in, in scope uh, a large organisation or uh, smes the original proposal was to restrict uh, the scope to large organisations um as it now does uh, whereas a number of the um, and members of the House of Lords took issue with this approach, suggesting that it should actually apply to all companies, irrespective of size. Um, the act that uh, ha- has been passed uh, does, however, restrict it to large organisations. Um, the second uh, key, po- key um, Point that was being debated was, uh, well, a matter, a matter that the House of Lords attempted to introduce a, a separate failing a failure to prevent money laundering offence, uh, which was rejected by the House of Commons on the basis that existing laws already make sufficient provision in relation to preventing money laundering. So those are just two of the kind of key topics that were uh, up for debate right up until the last few weeks.
0: Yeah, I think the large versus SME thing um, led to one of my favourite quotes from the debates on the bill, which was um, Sir Edward Garnier Casey, who was leading quite a lot of these um, these amendments, who talked about, you know, if you have a very short burglar and a very tall burglar, um, and they both commit a burglary, you don't sort of only prosecute the tall people. Um, now. Personally, I'm not sure that's the best analogy because there are all sorts of arguments around sort of proportionality and compliance burden, and the fact it's actually easier to prosecute small companies under the existing identification principle, anyway, that sort of cut across that. Uh, but it's quite an entertaining um, analogy. Um, Just to note as well on on context, um, this does also tie into the broader kind of economic crime agenda. So for those who are avid readers on these sorts of topics, the government published their economic crime plan 2023 to 26 earlier this year, and then their fraud strategy in May 2023. Um, And certainly this gets a mention in the fraud strategy as something which uh, the government intends or or hopes will lead companies to put those reasonable procedures in place and thereby affect the level of what is seen as an epidemic of of fraud and scams in the UK. I'm slightly sceptical about uh, whether it will ultimately have um, uh, a significant effect on the volume of fraud, uh, but uh, we shall see. Uh, in uh, in due course uh, but look I should wrap up now because we are at time and this is the first in a series um, we're going to be talking about a number of specific aspects of the offence such as jurisdiction uh, associated persons and so on and also looking at how this offence will apply in different sectors and its intersection with different um, areas of law and regulation, whether that's financial services regulation, um, whether that's the Online Safety Act uh, and so on. So do watch out for those episodes. We've also put in the show notes for uh, this episode some of our previous briefings on the progress of the Bill through um, the Houses of Parliament uh, and some of the background that we've just been touching on at the end. So I hope you will join us um, to listen to those future episodes and discuss more about this uh, significant new development and thank you very much Liz and Jess for joining me today. Thanks very much. Thank you.